I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is author Patricia Grayhall. Uh, her new book, her debut memoir, is Making the Rounds, Defying Norms in Love and Medicine. In her debut memoir, she shares her personal story for anyone who has ever lived the burden of being told their passions or ambitions are wrong. At 19, defying expectations of a woman growing up in Arizona in the 60s, she fled Phoenix for San Francisco, determined to finally come out as a lesbian after years of trying to be a, quote, normal girl. Her dream of becoming a physician drew her back to college and then on to medical school in the conservative environment of Salt Lake City. Patricia longed for an equal, loving relationship with a woman, but her graduate medical training in Boston, with its emotional demands, long hours, lack of sleep, and social isolation, made finding that relationship difficult. Her memoir is a chronicle of coming of age during second wave feminism and striving to have both love and career as a gay medical doctor, finding them in the most surprising ways. She's published in Queer 40 and the Gay and Lesbian Review. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Nice to have you on. Thank you, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. Well, you've had a long journey, 60s, 70s, all you've been through, uh, coming out as a lesbian, as a uh, a gay doctor. Um, So maybe we should start with why at this point did you decide to write your memoir? And I know that you use a pen name and a lot of the people in the book, it's not their real names because they don't want to be necessarily uh, revealed. So, uh, you know, here it is, 2000, uh, 2022, and uh, here's your story. Right. So um, about three years ago, I was, um, I was, I was downsizing and uh, I came across a box of journals and letters I hadn't looked at for 40 years. And, you know, who knows what you might find when you go delving into the past and maybe some answers to things that were unresolved or too painful to contemplate at the time. Um, and, I, you know, I realized the, the past lives on inside of all of us and influences us, whether we're aware of it or not. So I started reading those, and as I contemplated my personal journey during that time in the 1960s and 70s, coming out as a lesbian and uh, a woman training to be a doctor when it was pretty much an all-male profession, I realized my story had relevance beyond the personal. I think young people today really don't know what it was like before Title IX and before Roe yeah, v. So, Wade. What, let me ask you this. So young people today don't realize what it was, how different it is, say, for, uh, well, the LBGTQ community, uh, a woman practicing medicine, both of those things. What are the differences? I mean, they don't recognize the differences, what it's been 40 years. So Tell us what the differences are. What don't they understand? And why do they need to understand it? Why do we need to know that history? Well, clearly we need to know that history because history repeats itself. But um, what's different today because of, um, because of uh, well, what women like me went through and struggled for back in the 60s and 70s? For example, the experience of 
becoming a physician would have changed dramatically. So women in my medical school class would have comprised 50%. This is currently. Women would have uh, would now comprise 50% rather than 5%. And now I'd have female role models as professors and physician mentors in residency training. And with more women physicians, the culture of medicine and patient outcomes, as shown by some recent studies, have changed for the better. The other thing that is different now is... Um, coming to terms with sexual identity would be easier in many, but not obviously not all parts of the country. Um, if yeah, when you mention that many and, but not all parts of the country, like uh, say you're in a blue state and uh, you are working at a major medical facility. Uh, do you think it would be an issue necessarily if you were gay or straight or transgendered or as opposed to a red state? And how does that yes. influence how you practice? I guess yes. the second part of that is how does that influence how you practice medicine? Right. Well, clearly, I'm, I live in Washington, so I don't hide my identity and haven't for uh, several decades now. Um, but uh, clearly, people in in my state, it's not, for the most part, it's not an issue. At least it's, it really hasn't come up as an issue for me in my practice here in Washington. Um, I think it is important to be out and to be visible as clearly as a woman, but also as a, a queer person, as that's the terminology, that, the umbrella term that's used now for all the different ways people can love one another. Um, so... I think it's important as role models. And also, the media, uh, <laughs> now, it shows people like me who are not living tortured, miserable lives and who don't have to die or go back to men at the end of the story. Um, and uh, there's a much more positive portrayal of the life options for people who love people of the same sex. But I want to connect that, uh, if you can answer this question, because make that connection between as a professional, as a physician, um, how that, how it changes when you can be yourself and who you are, obviously, and love who you want, and, and how that changes the dynamics of, of a a physician of the work that one would do, either in a hospital or socially, uh, you know, all of it, because there is a huge difference and the impact I think is really great. And when you have to keep things in and pretend that you're something you're not in your personal life and then give it your all in your professional life and um, live up to the standards of whatever that is, it's really incongruent. So um, maybe you could talk to us about that. Sure. Well, I, it's changed greatly since yeah. I entered practice. When I first started uh, practicing, I was part of a large multi-specialty clinic that was mostly men, and um, and I ha I pretty much had to hide my identity. I used um, I used the pronoun they when I was talking about anything having to do with 
my partner. And um, I certainly didn't reveal my sexuality to my colleagues, felt it was none of their business, and they didn't ask, and, um, and nor did I to my patients. Gradually over time, though, that has changed, and I certainly now feel more, much more comfortable. I mean, it's, it's possible now I've invited my, some of my former colleagues to my wedding to a woman. Um, I have, uh, in, in my practice, I'm able to talk freely to patients and ask them about their sexuality and their emotional and sexual preferences. Um, and I think for me, too, I, my physician, my own personal physician, I'm able to speak comfortably about uh, obviously using the correct pronouns and also um, I'm asked appropriate questions instead of like what form of birth control do you use or yeah. um, you know, things like that. So, And I'm able to, if there are issues in my relationship I wish to discuss, I, I feel perfectly comfortable doing that. All of that has evolved, obviously, over the last several years. But I don't think that's true in many parts of the country still. Well, we're, we are a divided country <laughs> um, in many areas, as you say, and in, including this one. So, uh, yeah, it, 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 to me, I think it would make a huge difference in terms of how you practice medicine. It's interesting. Some of my gay male friends, they like to go to a gay male doctor. Think it, uh, and feel more comfortable doing that, um, and of course have the choice. So that's another piece of it, right? Yeah. When you wrote the book and you decided to write it because it is revealing, uh, were there people uh, in your life, either personal or colleagues, who didn't want you to write the book, who were uncomfortable with you writing the book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course, there were. Um, well, first of all, my partner didn't understand why I wanted to bury myself in the past and, you know, dig up all these old journals and, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, it just didn't see the point of that at all. And uh, so I had some resistance there. And then, of course, as I decided, or, well, originally I was just writing it for myself, but as I got more invested in the process and I got excited about learning the craft of writing, I took courses at Hugo House and um, I took a six-month memoir writing course that was very intense and realized, and I started sharing my story with other people and then I realized, of course, many of the characters in my book are still my friends. And, for example, one woman is now married to a man, has been married to him for 27 years, and uh, we're friends. We see each other periodically. He has no idea about her previous relationship with me. The same thing, and there's another woman who... Um, never acknowledged 
or came to terms with having an attraction to another woman back in the day. And we're still friends. So my desire to uh, write under pen name had to do with uh, not only protecting my privacy, the privacy of some of the physicians and patients I mentioned, but also um, not wanting to hurt those I love by revealing things they not like to be revealed. So you, you respected their privacy. You're writing your memoir, but then there's all a certain respect for where they are in their lives, and each one of them, I assume, is is different. Um, you know, in the beginning of the memoir, I, I think it's interesting to share this part of it um, that you tried tried to be, and I in the intro, as I said, a normal girl, and tried to be attracted to men. Um, but that, and, and you describe that experiences and, and, um, so maybe we could just describe a, a couple of those experiences to us, because I think that's very common, uh, maybe not as much as you say, 40 years later now, but I, I think it still exists. There is some pressure for, um, you know, queer kids to try to see whether they can be heterosexual Sure. Well, back in 1965, when I first realized I had um, attraction to other girls or, you know, Catherine Hepburn in the movies or Elizabeth Taylor, I was much more drawn to them than I was to the male heroines, male heroes. So you you picked some good ones, some very attractive women. I did. I did. And so I, I went to the library because I heard my mother mentioning the word lesbian and I didn't know what it meant. And I went to the library and I read that um, the homosexuals were uh, mentally ill, that um, they couldn't sustain relationships or hold down jobs and were doomed to lead, lead unhappy lives. And obviously this wasn't very encouraging. And then my mother, I had (laughs) to find out more. I'd written away to the Daughters of Belitis in San Francisco to try to find out more. And they sent me a magazine, which my mother found. And her response, as well as the response of my friend who was present when she found it, was so intensely negative that I decided the worst thing I could be was a lesbian. So... I really tried to um, date men. I, um, I actually dated, when I was 17, I dated a man that I was attracted to as a person. I, he was actually quite a lovely man and really, in many ways, handsome and smart. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try this. But when push came to su- shove, you know, I... I realized it was actually his sister that I felt attracted to. <laughs> and I assume it literally came to push, came to shove, <laughs> visualizing. <laughs> almost, but, almost, yeah. yeah. So you were attracted to his sister, right, which makes a lot more sense. And do we want to reveal what happened or save that for when people Well, I'll save read? that for the book. All right, yeah. save that. We'll see what, yeah, okay, we'll save that. Uh, but it was a struggle. I mean, it, it would seem to me too. I mean, like you are, you're a physician, so obviously your academics did not suffer. Um, you 
were most of the time, what, a straight A student, straight A minus student scholarship to college. So you were able to do that balance um, because of your intellect, at least that in, in reading the memoir, because of your intellect and your cognitive abilities, which not everybody has. It's not just that, but I had this amazing ability to compartmentalize. So I, um, from an early age, my family life was a, a bit dysfunctional. My father suffered from major depression, and and my mother was often stressed and upset. I had the ability to just go in my room and totally focus on my studies, and this carried me forward through all, you know, through college and medical school and my training because I, I really could shut everything else off and focus on my work and my study, and to, and it was also my therapy. It was a refuge, and um, I think that is. Uh, served me well, especially when my life got a little bit chaotic at times. What about what you decided to put in the memoir and what you decided to not or to put in and then take out? How did you how did you make those decisions or what was that based on? I mean, I'm assuming that there were things that this is an assumption that maybe some things you wanted to write about, but you didn't for for reasons. Can you talk about those? Um, well, I had, essentially I had to, I had to create an arc and a structure. <laughs> and in the beginning with my writing coach, she just had me writing about everything. And, um, and it wasn't until I did all those, what we call in writing, shitty first drafts, that I could actually see the arc, an arc of my story. And so I, I decided to limit it to this, to my late teens and 20s, which were a very transformative period of my life with a lot of change. And I, you know, I, I just left out a lot of things like the tedium of medical training. That would not be interesting. I didn't want to put in story after story of... Um, you know, what was going on in the hospital. I also had other relationships that were not conflictual, but that doesn't make good story. <laughs> there has to be some sort of push-pull conflict. Um, and initially, I wrote a chapter. There's a chapters three and four um, that I wrote that I found very cringe-worthy, actually, and I was going to keep them out. Um, uh, this was back in the day when I was trying to be straight, and I was... I, I had shown these chapters to a few of my women friends, and the reaction that I got was so intense. It was just like, absolutely not. You cannot leave that out. <laughs> you know, it will resonate with so many women and uh -huh. it's part of your journey so I put it in you know part of your journey and obviously is done in the context of all that's been had you mentioned title nine I think in the beginning of the interview can you comment on what's happening now have we gone back 40 years when we have 
uh, you know, in, in terms of the Supreme Court decision and Roe versus Wade, where are we? I mean, in terms of. <laughs> well, now in Washington, I wouldn't have had to have an illegal abortion at age 19 in someone's bedroom in Nogales, Mexico. Yeah. Uh, but would have greater access to birth control and safe options of care if I chose to end the pregnancy. Um, and that's only true now if I lived in a state that's not now limiting a woman's right to control her own body and criminalizing miscarriage and abortion. So, yes, of course, we're going backwards. It, it pains me greatly to see that. Um, and uh, I took some solace from reading um, Lillian Faderman's book, uh, which is uh, Women, an American Idea. And she talks about how, you know, we're, we're always making progress and slipping backwards, but we never slip all the way back with regard to women's rights and freedoms. So <laughs> hopefully we will continue to move forward again. Yeah, well, obviously, and, and I think that's true, it, we're, we're, this happened in a different context than 50 years ago. Um, so what would you say, is there anything that you would, are, or will do regarding that, re, re, you know, women's issues? Um, you know, you mentioned your own, abor- own abortion, and, and uh, I think I mentioned last week on the show to a physician I was interviewing, I mean, I know so many stories like yours in, in my day, you know, terrible stories amongst others uh, regarding a woman's right to choose. So is there anything that you plan to do or getting involved in any way at this particular point to help? I, I don't know what, to, I, I, I'm not talking about, I don't know what, but just because of who you are as a physician and the experiences that you've had, is there any place you can see? Yeah. Do you see? yeah. Well, I am involved in that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm putting my story out there to let people know what it was like when abortion was illegal. But I also, in, at present, I am a generous donor to Planned Parenthood and now to other organizations that are helping women travel to, to states that still offer reproductive care and abortion choice. So um, I, I think that's all I can do at this point. I'm no longer practicing medicine, and I never was involved in OBGYN anyway. But, um, and, of course, I'm going to vote. And I'm going to support candidates to, you know, with my financial, to, to the extent that I can financially, who are uh, pro-choice. We only have a couple minutes left. So can you give us some, a website or websites to go to for more information about maybe some of the work you're doing? Um, donating is a great thing, obviously. Uh, and uh, where we can get your book online, bookstores everywhere, I assume? Yes. Actually, um, so my book is uh, coming out October 11th, uh, 2022, and it has traditional distribution, so it will be available wherever books are sold. Um, I also have an audio book 
um, that's narrated by Alex Picard, who's wonderful. She did a fabulous job. And, um, and my website has just been revamped. I, I'm so happy with it now. It's um, www.patriciagrayhall.com. There's a lot more information and a lot of reviews of my book on the site. That's great. We have to mention the book again. I know Making the Rounds, Defying Norms in Love and Medicine. And I'm glad you mentioned Audible because I listen to books. And I'm, <laughs> I'm also glad that you got a professional voiceover person to do it because very often... And authors write wonderful books, but aren't the best voiceover people. And then they end up, do, uh, you know, doing the audible books. Not so good. So you've, <laughs> you've really covered all your bases. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, and I'll listen to it, too. Yeah, I actually, I, I should yeah. tell you that I, I tried to do a, a reading. And, yeah. you know, I, I read a little bit like I read scientific papers I've written. So, you know, I knew I had to get Alex to narrate. <laughs> yeah, you're a physician, not a voiceover artist. Great. Okay, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, this author, Patricia Grayhall, Making the Rounds, Defying Norms in Love and Medicine. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Catherine. It was fun. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 